And if we look at the way the British do things, you probably notice with the way we approach series, we don't go into these crowded rooms where there are 60 people filling up an entire scene. It's usually just two or three people in one room. We're used to thinking small. The show where we turn the ASMR to 11. This is The Gals of Geekdom. Hello, darlings. I'm Eva Webb, doing another solo podcast for the Gals of Geekdom. Don't worry, Crystal and Aaron will be back next week, but today, I'm here with writer, actor, YouTube personality, and the creator of the mysterious Mrs. E, Josh McPherson. We're here to talk about nerd stuff, Josh. Yes, we are. Uh, I originally came here to, do, to talk about Captain Marvel, I think Shazam, but geek, geek stuff in general is also kind of, kind of cool as well. There's a lot to dissect this week, I think. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. There really, really is. Mm-hmm. We've, we've got so much going on. Um, you know, all of the good shows just sort of uh, wrapped up. We've got uh, Star Trek Discovery coming down the tubes, which I, I don't know about you, but I am personally very excited about that. Oh, one. I am so looking forward to that. I mean, the, the last two series uh, I, I really enjoyed, um, I, despite plot holes. It, 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 you know, every series has plot holes at the end of the day. I really enjoyed oh, season sure. two. So I'm really hoping that with the with the uh, new setting they have, the, you know, it, it opens up a, a tremendous canvas for you know. So yeah, that, that, yeah. that I'm pretty excited about. It's interesting because uh, it, it almost looks like they're going with uh, the Voyager format, you know, uh, where they're they're trying to reset the whole continuity almost. I mean, I think Alex Kurtman has has been. Um, really given a hard job uh, of the, the fans originally were debating how were they going to fix continuity errors in the show and i'm like we're talking about um a series that you know that literally i think in the voyager series for example they had a compliment of uh, i think they had a compliment of 27 uh, photon torpedoes and ended up using minus 98 throughout the entire series so really continuity oh, yeah. There was a YouTube video on that, you know, like they in different episodes, they they killed what was it like five times the number of crew that they were supposed to have in the first place. Oh, God. Yeah. Yes. Yes, they did. And I think the way they tried to fix that was throwing an extra Federation ship that nobody knew went missing in the original series. I'm like, I would hate to have been the commander, the Equinox. That was it. Nobody mentioned the Equinox going missing, for, you know, for you know, for seven, you know, for seven years, and all of a sudden, it just I think, you know, yeah. So I just shows you how much of a geek I am that I'm paying attention to this, you know. You know, it's weird because Voyager has these um, these rare moments where it's it's just an amazing show, and then you know, it just forgets all of that yeah. and it just goes on these these weird episodic things that are just meaningless also whoever wrote the techno babble in voyager that that really bugged me because you could tell they were just making things up as yeah. they went you know, i i know it's techno babble and they're always making it up but um you know in all of the other star, star trek shows the techno babble's fairly consistent you can follow it you know you can tell what their computers are doing which is kind of sad because to me star trek voyager had the best star trek episode ever the one with the one with fear when 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 janeway literally scares fear itself uh what was that called i reviewed it the thor that was it and to me that was the best written star trek episode i've ever seen 
which is kind of ironic because to me, Star Trek Voyager is the worst series ever as far as Star Trek is concerned. They had that one episode. I don't remember what it was called. And that's the one where they're all sort of um, kidnapped and they're given amnesia and they, they go down to work in this factory. Oh, God, um, yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. It is become part of the workforce. Exactly. I think it was actually called Workforce or something along those lines. Um, and that was one of the greatest Star Trek episodes, I think, in any series. It was just absolutely fantastic. When Star Trek Voyager literally, when Star Trek Voyager literally bought on the right, you know, bought on the writers that could actually write, they did a damn good job. I mean, uh, we had the Medicare for All episode, I think, at one point with the with with the Doctor, you know, and, and his moral dilemma, and they, they they touched upon him literally risking killing somebody to make sure everybody got the care they needed, and then he runs a diagnostic a diagnostic on himself, and there's nothing wrong with him. And they never touch on that again. They never touch on that humanity that he felt at that time. It's kind of like they had an opportunity there, and it was just like totally forgotten about in the next in the next episode. Sadly, it was yeah. really interesting how uh, how they played with you know the your sense of self and identity. I mean, who are you? What does your life mean if somebody can just delete uh, an episode uh, from your memory and you have no say so in it oh yeah the one thing that i think voyager did right was focusing on humanity you know uh oh, sure. the, the, the moral con the moral conjures you know i mean one thing you can one thing you can say about uh, one thing you can say about voyager is that even though it got a lot of the um the morality wrong it, you know in, in many cases yeah captain janeway did have to you know did have to literally break up break more rules than than captain kirk did you know you know just to oh, yeah. survive out they wanted a show that represented the federation in the space where there was no federation and you know and with the marquee crew as well and i'm kind of like what marquee crew what pirate crew would literally decide that they're going to go by federation rules within within the space of just five episodes they had so much potential with that kind of story and i think they blew it you know sadly and they knew they had it but janeway was the kind of character that would break the rules if necessary but um i think they just kind of blew it you know you know that there was a lot of copping out with with voyager that um, ds9 didn't do yeah that's true i think ds9 also had a, a healthcare for all episode where was where um uh, dr bashir beams down to this planet where they're having a pandemic and he has to find a cure for a disease do you remember mm. that mm. yeah and Forgive me, like I said, I'm usually good with episode names, but um, yeah. Uh, I never heard the names or, or the numbers. I'm really bad about that, actually. So don't, don't feel bad. I mean, especially in today's day and age now, you, you, we have a global pandemic right now. And of course, President Trump has had, you know, now has COVID. And he's saying, oh, what wonderful care. His hospital, you know, uh, the hospital gave him. And then you realize that Nobody has that quality of care that the president currently has. And he's saying, oh, they did a great job on him. Well, great. Where's the oh, yeah. great job with the rest yeah. of us? You know? <laughs> exactly. He's a billionaire to begin with. So he's got a yeah. completely skewed idea of you know, what reality looks like. Yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, he's the most powerful man in the free world right now. Of course, he's going to have good health care. And he just automatically sort of assumes that the rest of us are going to have this. I think it was uh, his son, Donald Trump Jr., who said something along the lines of Biden's tax cut is going to affect everybody when it only affects people who make more than 400000 a year. Yeah. Um, and that just blew my mind when I heard it because uh, it just it shows how out of touch these people are. Well, um, 
I mean, I, I'm usually not one to, to, to judge the way the polls are going, especially after 2016. But yeah, it strikes me that the American people aren't buying the BS at this point. You know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, th- th- this is politics, not geek stuff. But I think, you know, Star Trek made a great segue to this. You know, you, you can yeah. talk about anything you want on yeah. the show. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the, 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 the sad reality, the sad reality is, is that Biden wasn't my choice. Bernie Sanders was my choice, you know. And uh, this is this is Scottish guys living in America speaking this, you know. You know, and having arguments with really rabid Bernie Sanders supporters who are not going to vote Biden no, no matter what. And I'm kind of like, okay, here's my here's my dilemma. Um, I either Except that we have a fascist in power right now who wants to make sure that he keeps holding on to power, or I worry about the right winger who's likely to become prime minister. And I would rather fight the right winger than I would fight the fascist. That's the way I'm approaching it. I, I really hate that that uh, the parties have, have set us up for for a really weak decision that that favors the status quo like this. Uh, but we have bad and and we have worse, and those mm. are the options this time. You know. And what do we, uh, uh, you know? And I, I think I'll settle for bad. The, 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 um, at least I can fight bad. Right, because fascism wants to rewrite the whole system and hold on to power forever. Well, that's, that's their objective. Yeah. Well, today's Christopher Columbus Day, and you—I don't know if you're aware, but White House website literally did a whole page today praising Christopher Columbus. Of course they did. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that and that tells you a lot about how out of you know about what not so much how out of touch they are about how in touch they are with um, the white straight base that want to keep this status quo. Getting back onto the geek thing, Lovecraft Country must be driving them insane. Uh, you know, it's a great show though. This last episode uh, I watched was the uh, the season ender. Yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, that was, I, you know, I had my wondering uh, as the show was going on if if I was watching, if I signed up for this, you know, if I if I was watching what I was expecting to watch uh, when I first started. But I really kind of liked the way the show was going, you know, the mm. the, the science fiction, the 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 self reflection. I, I feel was really really healthy. Oh you yeah. Know, that last episode with the demon dog, you know, just raising out of the street. That was. That's what you expect from a show called Lovecraft Country. It's yeah, perfect. That I blew my mind, you know, when I saw that happen. You know, the the the, the roadway just exploding, and wow, this day, you know, this day and age, you know, I used to be a police officer myself, but considering, but, really? but, but, but yeah, but considering, you know, considering Black Lives Matter movements and everything, I was on the dark side, you know. <laughs> I, I think I, I tweeted out at the time, uh, oh my God, this is the most gratifying thing I've seen all month. You know? Oh, yeah. It, it's great. And, you know, uh, uh, and the thing I like about Lovecraft Country is that it's not just self-reflection against, you know, about the white community, but about the black community's attitude towards the LGBT community as well. And uh, like like that thing with the uh, the two-spirit person uh, that, yeah. that showed up a few episodes back, that was that was hard to watch. It that was. was. Challenging, especially it, the end. Yeah, it was very hard to watch, and it made me question whether the show was doing, 
the you know our community justice with that particular scene and it made me feel uncomfortable but then when i started watching the following episode and then uh, the tulsa burning episode and it focused on those issues again it kind of started to to make more sense what they were saying it's kind of like yeah like like the kitsune episode in korea sure you know um they made you know it's kind of Throughout this, throughout the series, we were thinking that Atticus was supposed to be the sympathetic character, and then the Korean episode comes out, and he, the guy is a monster, you know. And, and that's just the thing about Lovecraft Country. The Lovecraft Country isn't about the monsters, you know, the kind of monsters that Doctor Who fights or what Lovecraft writes about. It's about us. It's about creatures, the monsters we are, you know. You know, oh, are absolutely. We in- and that's. That's more terrifying than anything. Yeah, yeah, I, I've been really enjoying that show. This is what science fiction and horror is meant to be. You know, it's meant to challenge our morality. You know, back in the day, you know, when we had Freddy Krueger and you know, and and Jason Voorhees and stuff like that, they were evil people. But at the same time, uh, well, Freddy Krueger at least he was an evil person. But at the same time, so were the people that that killed Freddy Krueger. You know, they oh, took sure. justice into their own hands, you know. And and it was also questioning, um, Freddy Krueger wasn't challenging our morality, you know, when the teenagers have sex or anything. That wasn't what, what, the, message, what the message was. It was basically, there was an adult, there was the adult community attacking the young who wanted to be free and, you know, and whatever. I didn't, when people were saying, saying oh, the morality is wrong, the, you know, the, if you lose your virginity, you, you know, in a horror movie, you are therefore morally corrupt. No, that wasn't what it was saying. It was saying <laughs> that's what adults were thinking about us at the time. <laughs> Hellraiser. So what's your thought on Hellraiser? I think well, the first movie, and I've read the books as well, what I liked about the first movie was basically it, 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 Pinhead wasn't so much an evil character as he was just basically this demon cop. It was basically when the Cenobites came, it's kind of going, okay, this is what we do. We bring people to hell. We make sure that hell doesn't come to earth because there's a lot of you out there that, that isn't ready for what we have to offer you, you know. Oh, sure. Uh, and then oh. later on, it's, you know, you, hell and earth just kind of blew all that out the window. And the sequels just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And they wanted so much to create a franchise that was on par with the other, you know, with Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, Leatherface and that kind of thing, that they forgot what the morality of Hellraiser was all about, what the story actually was. It's a shame, really. You know, I wish Clive Barker had just kept that to it, you know, kept that to himself. It's one of those lost opportunities. Uh, or maybe it's or maybe it's ripe for a reboot. I mean, it has been oh, um, it is, quite yeah. a while, and and you know, with these reboots, you have the advantage of time, so you know what the audience reaction is to different things, and you know what the people who like it mm-hmm. like. Well, they, they've learned a lot. I mean, to take a look at the Transformers franchise, for example. You know, Michael Bay. Oh. I, I could go on on a whole rant about Michael Bay's portrayal, you know, of Transformers and how he as far as I'm concerned, ruined the franchise. But then again, I'd sound no better than a Discovery hater in that point. Uh, so yeah. Well, you know, it started it started strong. The first couple of movies I thought were uh, yeah. were amazing. But I, I got really tired of them around, uh, around the third installment, and uh, I stopped watching them. Yeah, so did I. I. I watched the first one, and I enjoyed the first one for what it was. I watched the second one, and it was around about the time where 
the writer strike was going on, and it was a prime example of how you don't do a story without a writer. Facts and explosions were fun. Oh but, yeah, you know, you need more as a as a fan, I think. Yeah, you do, you do, and, and really the 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 other Transformers movies I just watched because I had to review them, and that's kind of sad because when I watch a movie, I want to watch a movie, you know, and uh, you know, but the problem is there was sure. nothing new, to, you know, as a reviewer, as a writer, there was nothing new to say about those movies and then um Net- the netflix released um uh, its its series uh siege was it siege yeah transformers siege yes I'm sure. and and oh my I, god it's good i love that i love that i, I you know I, I love that they they literally this is how you do dark transformers right but megatron isn't actually the bad guy he's just the guy with a you know with an alternative point of view you know he he, he has the wrong way of do you know doing it you know but when you look at the core of his character, he wasn't doing it because he was a bad guy. He was doing it because, well, Cybertron needs to be better. Cybertron's society has failed us. And I'm really grateful that um, IDW Comics encouraged this new dynamic to the Transformers characters. You know, uh, I don't know if you recall, but in the original reboot in IDW, they went through this this arc with Megatron where he finally becomes an Autobot and he's genuine about his redemption, you know, and that was courageous. That was a, and they did it well. They did it well. So I'm hoping that they go down this route with the Netflix series as well, where they literally focus on Megatron's character rather than this this maniacal evil character. You know, like how they did with the Hordak and She-Ra. You know, the new, new Shira, oh, sure. you know, where Hordak wasn't evil. He was just this rejected clone. Oh, for sure. I, I just hope they don't get Starscream a redemption arc because uh, Starscream not being petty and evil would be uh, yeah. a disappointment. I yeah. Think. I mean, with, with, with the um, Combiner Wars, I was hoping that they'd give him a redemption arc and, you know, which I think was the primary disappointment for me of the, uh, you know, the Combiner War saga, where they gave us the hope that there was this something deeper going on with the characters, and it turned out that it was just basically more of the same. But Siege fixed all of that, fixed all, you know, fixed all of that. I don't get me wrong, I enjoyed the, you know, the Combiner War saga for what it, you know, sagas for what it was, and I did like Megatron's redemption in that, you know, to to a certain degree. I think Siege did it better. I mean, especially now we're dealing with, we're adults now, you know, we're in, you know, I'm in my, four, you know, I'm, in, I'm, I'm nearly 50. I'm, I'm, I'm actually 47 tomorrow. So, and, um, oh, happy birthday. thank you. Um, and we're dealing with, with, with adult issues now, you know, we're generation one fans. I'm a generation one fan. So to me, generation one has, you know, has to have these, um, adult themes because you know that me as an adult could appreciate because i don't think i could watch generation one the original series without wondering why the hell did i like this crap you know <laughs> i did that actually i rewatched the whole thing um, yeah i did a transformers thundercats of voltron thing oh, wow. and, uh, i was just trying to recapture that feeling of of watching them you know and um the theme song for for transformers i think 
yes. still still gives me chills, you know. Oh when, yeah. When you see that more than meets the eye pop in and the, the logos spin around and mm-hmm. then you get to the show and um, I don't know. I think I graduated from the cartoon when I was a kid to the uh, when they stopped making them after the movie for yeah. a little bit there. I graduated to the comic and um, the the lore of it. I got I got used to the the politics and the history yeah. uh, of the the Transformers world, where Cybertron came from, the Ancients, all that fun stuff. These concepts uh, that that popped in, and uh, I that that's sort of the way Transformers cemented in my mind. So you know, going back to it, yeah. uh, oh God, I'm old. Thirty years later. <laughs> I'm only a couple of years younger than you. Uh, but yeah, going back to it, um, 30, 30 years later um, and watching it, it's like, yeah, I kind of remember this, but I, I don't, I, I don't get the uh, that excitement that I did when I was like, you know, yeah. six years old and and watching this awesome cartoon. Oh yeah, yeah, and um, I, I'm really, you know, I'm really glad that the, what, what they did was that they got the old manager, Simon Thurman. Hoover, you know, Hoover meets very special because um, he he was he originally wrote the UK comic continuity before he was taken on nice. with the you know with with, um, with uh, the American continuity, and they always go back to him because now he's apparently this Illuminati of Transformers lore. He actually invented a lot of what you see now in today's uh, renditions of Transformers. You know. Um, I, I remember the the Transformers UK comics. Yeah, they were so hard to get here in the US. Yeah, uh, but they were totally worth it. So, what do you think about the the difference? Because there is a difference, I think, and, and yeah. people call me crazy when I point this out. But uh, what do you think of the difference between the way um, comics are written and presented in the UK versus uh, how the American stories are done? Well, I think for us. Um, in the UK, we, you know, we have two ways of approaching comics. Um, one is basically, where, you know, you know, it's the basic approach just to please the kids. But then mm-hmm. you also have this heavy storyline going on. Going, you know, you just got to go back to the ages of Eagle, Dan Dare, or Battle Comics, mm-hmm. which was my just my first introduction to GI Joe, which was back then called Action Force, in, you know, in, in my day. And if you actually look at the comic, you know, look at Battle Action Force or Battle or, or Eagle, you'll see how how much they put into their storylines, how much they put into their backgrounds, into the characters. You know, these aren't just uh, good guys or bad guys. They literally have their origin stories. I mean, for uh, you know, for, for me, Action Force was the Action Force British comic was far more interesting than the G.I. Joe adaption in America. Because there was this really strong relationship dynamic between Lady J, Flint, and the Des- you know Destro. Cobra Commander didn't ma- hardly made an appearance in the UK renditions of, of GI Joe. It was more concentrated on Lady J, Flint, and Destro, and they did an entire arc with this relationship dynamic between that trio that you know that, that literally caught the imagination the only interest i got in the american version of gi joe was the uh, cobra commander's son dynamic you know it got interesting to me when they were planning the assassination of cobra commander and uh, it turned out to be that they're, they're going to use cobra commander's son to do it 
um, that's when the series became nice. interesting for me. I, I think my most memorable exposure to uh, to English comics was uh, when I was 16. I, uh, I went, went to uh, boarding school, and uh, my bunkmate was this kid from Wales. Yeah. He had this gigantic box of 2000 AD, Judge Dredd, oh, Judge and Dredd, Black yes. and White Batman. And yeah. uh, I read these things. He, he let me read them, thank God. Mm. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just poured through every single one of them. Like, uh, I discovered um, Mark Wagner, for example. Um, I read uh, America, which is one of the greatest comics, I think, uh, ever written in any form, in, yes. uh, in magazine form. I read it. And uh, it blew me away. And I'm like, why is this the first time I'm seeing this? Because I, I, you know, read thousands of comics, you know, at this point. There's just this quality to them that, that sucks you in. And you see it with, you know, writers like Neil Gaiman. They, yeah. they, they do the same thing. And it's, I, I used to call it compression, but I... I think it's I think it's larger than that. I think there's just something about the way that the stories are constructed uh, that the Americans don't do. Like uh, well, you see, you see it when Americans take over like a like an English property. The stories don't work the same way. Yeah, I mean we're not afraid of being bizarre when it comes to our comic writing. I mean, for instance, with with, with, this, with the Mrs. E series, you know, I'm writing. Uh, I'm still waiting for the live action option from you know from, from a particular studio. So which is why I'm doing the animated with Mrs. E. I just created this 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 reality where a woman owns a tea shop, smack bang in the middle of every single reality you could possibly imagine. You know, nice. and, it's, and it's bizarre, you know, because you could do almost anything with that. You know, all she's doing is going on these excursions to find tea for a tea shop and finds herself in very dangerous adventures. You know, and that's, you know, we're not afraid of think, thinking out of the box, being bizarre, you know, being... Um, out of the ordinary, you know, like Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere and the Sandman series and stuff like that. Clyde Barker's Hellraiser is Clyde Barker's British. You just, you know, you just have to look at the differences between what what we do and what and how Americans write. Americans, I think American writers are afraid of something new. They're afraid of doing the new thing. Whereas in Britain, we don't get ratings. Well, it's it's not a lot of money lost, you know, you know, on TV, you know, we just move on to the next thing, you know, but, um, and I think, forgive me for, for, for seeing a silver lining, in, you know, in 2020, but COVID is a terrible thing, you know, it's happening to us right now. But also at the same time, it's pushing filmmakers and writers to think out of the box, you know, because you can't go out and make a film without the risk of getting COVID. So now it's pushing writers and creators and directors and producers into whole new directions and how they're going to create something new out of something that's terrible you know how, how they're going to continue the, you know being positive when something so bad is going you know and if we look at the way the british do things you probably notice with the way we approach series we don't go into these crowded rooms where there are 60 people filling up an entire scene it's usually just two or three people in one room we're used to thinking small and quiet and you know the slow burn, whereas in America, everything has to happen at once. And everybody has to see, you know, see what's going on. So you have these action sequences like in like in the Avengers movies where people are running left, left and right in absolute chaos. You know, so um, I, I'm hoping I'm hoping that uh, at least what you know, what little good we can get out of this creatively will encourage American writers and producers to be more conservative 
with their approach to creation because I think they'd be way over liberal. I, I, I'm with the um, oh who who wrote the Watchmen? Who wrote the, Alan the Moore. Alan Moore. I'm with Alan Moore at this point. I think that saturation has been the medium's problem lately. As much as I enjoy the MCU, I, 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 it's one of my it's one of the things that I will go out of my way to go watch. They need to go for a more Deadpool approach to it now, you know. And, and the original point we're going to discuss, you know, we're going to, Shazam, uh, Captain Marvel. The reason Captain Marvel worked so well for me was because it was such a tiny movie. It was perfect. It, mm. it was it was faithful enough to the source material that it was fun, but it was creative enough that um, I still felt like I got something new from it that I, I wouldn't yeah. necessarily have gotten otherwise. Yeah, Captain Marvel or Shazam, as he's called now, he's my favorite DC Universe character. I find him more morally um, morally adjust than, than Superman is. I mean, I you know, I, and Superman's one of my favorites too, more favorite than Batman, I'll be honest. But the thing I like about Shazam is that for a kid, he is remarkably more mature than his Justice League counterparts. Great times, yeah. I, I think modern DC, at least in at least mm. in the comics. Uh, has this tendency to, to take Shazam very seriously and go mm-hmm. dark with the character far too often. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's historical precedent for dark Shazam that, that is respectable and reasonable and okay, yeah. um, but I don't think it works uh, as well as bright, happy, funny Shazam. You know, yeah. I mean, this, this is a character that, that, that has roots. You know, he's got a, a talking tiger for a sidekick in the classic yeah. series. You know, he's got, uh, he fights... He fights the most ridiculously incompetent Nazis who incidentally keep going well after World War II. <laughs> you know, um, he's just, um, in, in the writing, you know, the, uh, the Otto Bender, C.C. Beck yeah. era writing uh, was, was really subtle. I just think that, um, you know, when you try to go too dark with a character like this, when you try to turn him into a god like they did with DC Metal, I, I think it just, it's fun to watch, but... You, it totally misses the point of the character. Exactly, yeah. And um, I'll be honest with you, she, I, I, I like the Dark Metal series. I like the uh, Death Metal series so far. But I am really, really hoping that we do not have to touch on a Shazam uh, Dark Multiverse story. Um, that is something I don't see. You know, it's to me, you know, I'm actually glad that right now, they're keeping Shazam out of death metal. You know, uh, they sure. brought him into the Batman Who Laughs series, and I thought that was a mistake. I thought what they did to Billy Batson in um, the Batman Who Laughs series was probably a too cruel a joke too far for my liking, you know? Um, I, I was not happy about it. No, and, um, you know, I, I understand um, the Rock of Eternity's role, in, you, know, you know, in the multiverse theory and, you know, in all of that but shazam is it's to me is such an innocent character to, to you know to, to to an extent that that you're right if you make him dark you have dark shazam you have black adam okay you know oh, yeah. and black and black adam works outside of the captain marvel universe as this dark character okay i'm okay with him you know with black adam going into the dark multiverse i'm okay with black adam being in the sea in deceased, they you know they utilized Black Adam very well in the deceased series, you know. But um, I, I I like how Black Adam is sort of this sharp contrast yeah. to to Shazam in that way. Black Adam doesn't make sense 
No. I don't think if you've got a dark Shazam, because Shazam is just so light and fluffy and fun and silly, <laughs> um, you know, for lack of a better way to describe it. And Black Adam is very serious. He yeah. has very serious motivations. He, he's he's kind of an anti-hero in his own right, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know if calling him a villain at this point is fair. He's he's the Doctor Doom of the DC universe, you know. Do- Doctor Doom be the, the villain back in my day, you know. Spider-Man and his amazing friends and the Fantastic Four. But then they totally um, reinvented Doctor Doom, not as a villain, but as somebody almost to sympathise, you know, to the point that I think oh, yeah. Reed Richards Reed Richards took his, you know, took on the took on the mantle of Doctor Doom. I think I think in the um, X Earth series. You know, and I like that kind of um, complexity to our, you know, to our villains now, for want of a better word. And I'm currently reading the the What If series, right? The What If um, issue that came out now. Um, what if Doctor Doom uh, hadn't lost the Beyonder powers? And and it, it it has a very interesting conclusion, which is pretty much like All Star Superman, um, where he gives up his his entire powers to save, you know, to save the planet. You know, and he becomes more, you know, he becomes mortal again, you know. You know, so it's, um, yeah, I won't give too much away from that. But if you can get the what if, that what if, I think it just came out today. If you can get that what if, it's a very interesting take, the Secret Wars um, Doctor Doom. Oh, my God. Nice, Secret I'm going to have to pick that, that up. Secret Wars, that's such a long time ago. Jeez. Oh, I know. I know. It was one of the first comics I ever read. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, what, 1984, 85? I, I was really little when that one came out. Spider-Man's black costume was like a revelation. It was so exciting. I remember the energy. I got really excited about it. But I was a Spider-Man fanatic at that point. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Uh, it was, uh, ironically, it was the 1960s series that got me into Spider-Man, and that is way before my time. You know, so, you know, the, the original uh, Captain America and Iron Man animations, when, you know, when they came out in VHS in our local video store, you know, you know I, I would get them alongside Kid with the White Lion and stuff like that. That's awesome. So, my, my dad sat me down with, uh, with Spider-Man reprints mm-hmm. uh, sometime around 1983. Um just a big, thick book of reprints. And uh, I decided then and there that I was going to be the greatest comic book writer and artist that there had ever been. You know, big, big life decisions. You know, oh, God, I, yeah, I was yeah. really out of diapers at the time. <laughs> I mean, I, I was the same, you know, I, I wanted to be a comic book writer or a cartoon writer. And now here I, here I am. I'm now a screenwriter. It took 47 years for me to be well, discovered. Congratulations. But, <laughs> but I'm there, you know. So thank you. Thank you. It took me 47 years, but I'm there now, you know. <laughs> but um, uh, what, what else have you worked on? Well, um, I've basically done small things, you know, small independent um, fan films. Um, I did Star Trek fan films when I, you know, when I was in my 20s, you know, and uh, nice. I, I played Doctor Who at least in three fan movies. I, I've been the, the Doctor three times, so if we're now going to go by the time this child um, plot line, I'm now an official Doctor. So, <laughs> but yeah, uh, and um, actually my, 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 my first attempt at comic book writing was a comic called Ariel High School Devil Girl. And, and, and it's an example of how I think, how I tend to think out of the box when it comes to writing. Ariel wasn't this 
bad person because she was a demon. And I didn't paint demons as a bad, you know, as bad people or, or whatever. She was just basically a young girl who misbehaved in hell so much that her father decided to send her to high school. And, I love it. And back in, you know, this was in uh, 1991 before LGBT and LGBT and race issues even became a thing in independent media. And um, Ariel grew up to be able to be the girlfriend of her former high school rival. Nobody did um, LGBT things, you know, on that scale back in the past. So I was actually pretty proud that I was one of the first comic book writers at the time to actually cross that threshold is you know i didn't say hint at hint at the possibility she was gay or anything like that it was just basically yeah she's gay what of it move on beautiful yeah one of the things that bugs me and this is um you'll find what i'm doing with the, with, with the series is that how i think that um lgbt issues in particular as well as disabled issues as you've probably seen in my twitter Account. I post a lot on um, disabilities and misrepresented in media. When it came to LGBT issues in, in shows before Star Trek Discovery did it right, um, which is basically the hot chick was having a lesbian relationship with the uh, the hot chick in the TV show. And I'm like, and I'm like thinking to myself, so they just basically turned it into an issue of voyeurism. Whereas I'm just approaching this, it's just the thing that happens. You know, life is life as um, heterosexual people, life as gay people, life as transgendered people, life as uh, people with disabilities. These are these are normal things. These are not abnormal things. These are not out of the ordinary things. What's abnormal to me is how we have sensationalized it, how we have um, turned it into something to talk down on, or to just basically, oh look at us, we're represent, you know, we're now representing. A minority that's never been represented before. We're so proud of ourselves, and it's all wrong. You know, they're not doing it right. You know, it's and that really annoys me. Uh, I suffer from paraplegia after I was shot in the war, so so I'm I'm still recovering. I can walk now, but it's it, it, it's still frustrating. And um, what annoyed me about the disabled characters in TV shows and in comic shows, in comic books. Uh, other, you know, was that they were the nerd. They were the person that was kept out of the action. They were just important enough to say, we have a disabled person in our show. And that was all. And that really frustrates. If you look at the poster I sent you, uh, the main character is in a wheelchair and she's smack bang in the middle of the action. She's the one pointing it out in the poster going, let's go to adventure. We need better representation. Um, in the LGBT community, we need to have the reputations in all minorities because we're doing it wrong. I think. I think um, they have good intent. You know, I think they have good intentions, but I don't think they have enough knowledge of what they're dealing with. I hope I'm not rambling. That <laughs> that was my rant for. No, I, I agree with you 100%. My um, my hot take is that all representation is good representation. I just want yeah. better representation you know what i mean Um, like uh, with trans characters especially it's really hard to find um, good trans characters in literature and media Uh, there have been a couple of them one show that uh that that did it absolutely perfectly and i was i was floored was dispatches from elsewhere have you seen that show Mm -hmm. yes fantastic show uh Mm -hmm. it was fun it was whimsical it was cosmic nonchalance has permanently entered my vocabulary is something i say (laughs) now (laughs) 
Yes. And, uh, you know, having the, uh, not just having a, a trans character that was a good trans character, but um, making her the romantic lead, that blew my mind, because I had, I have never seen that on television before. One of our characters, um, one of our main characters, yeah, he shows up in episode three, and he's a trans character, a female-to-male character. And we don't make a big thing of it. He just is trans. And I was having a discussion with one of my producers. So when do we reveal that he's trans? I said, we don't. It's, we don't do an origin story. You know, that's more, you know, if we start doing origin stories as to where he came from and when he was a she, that kind of thing, isn't that to me that that to me is equivalent to dead name? You know, so I don't want to do an origin story as to when she became a he. I don't think that's important. I think the important thing is his character, who he is, who he is as a hero. And um, and and to me, it's like I said, a lot of films these days that are focused on um, they seem to focus a lot on this diamorphic approach to the trans you know to the transgender i hate to use the word condition that's that's a terrible word but i use um, the word experience yeah that's how they tend to present it is how they stare at themselves in the mirror you know as a you know as a man before they transform into a woman and that kind of thing and it's kind of like that is like I said, it makes it feel to me and a lot of my trans friends like it's not something that they're representing. It's something that, like I said before, they're just voyeur, turning into voyeurism, you know. And uh, yeah, and it's really, really. I, I I understand that these are straight people that think that they know what it means to be transsexual, but I'm not transsexual. I'm not going to pretend I understand, you know, what it means to to change my gender. I, I don't know that. But at the same time, I'm not going to write a character without first discussing it with the community I'm dealing with. I'm so happy that the voice actor I have for the role is a, is a female to male um, black transgender. And he has been tremendously helpful in helping me create the character, making the character more human. rather than, rather Rather than somebody I'm just thinking I know what I'm writing about. I uh, I, th- I think it's tricky because yeah. I, I don't want to tell you as a trans person that you shouldn't create trans characters no. simply because you're not a trans person. Uh, but I do think that uh, there's a lot that profoundly uh, impacts any character you would create mm-hmm. uh, that you just can't know about uh, unless exactly. somebody tells you about it. You know? Exactly, yeah. It's a balance. So for me, input is important. Like I said, I don't want to make the mistake of just writing a trans character for the sake of him being a trans character. I, I can't do that. I think that would be more disrespectful to the trans community than respectful. Does that make any sense? It, it makes perfect sense, actually. Um, I think my biggest complaint with trans characters yeah. Uh, in general, and this is one that other trans people completely yeah. disagree with me on, so just take this with a grain of salt, but um, I, like, when you have cisgendered characters, um, yeah. it's not unusual to see a character that's completely messed up, that has a redemption arc where that person has to deal with their problems and overcome 
any serious issue. Um, I think my honest uh, complaint with, uh, with trans characters, though, uh, by contrast, is that uh, by the time you meet them in their stories normally, they really have their shit together. Yeah. You know, they, they've accomplished everything they need to accomplish, you know, uh, or they just don't have problems. I think... Yeah. In general, I would like to see trans characters that are a little more screwed up, that have a little more to work on, that uh, are a little further away uh, from their goals so that, you know, you could do the character development and really have them get there. You know, they yeah. give them things to overcome, uh, show that they're really people. And uh, I feel like that's the sense that, that I don't get uh, yeah. a good 50 percent of the time with trans characters. Yeah, I mean, um, we open up um, the main character. One of the two main characters, Aiko. A lot of the um, shows uh, I've seen basically build up to the gay relationship in, you know, you know, like Shiro. And I thought that was very well done in Shiro. In my show, I've literally thrown the main character into deep and said, she's already married. She's in a gay marriage already. And she's being honest. She has issues with that because people judge her for that marriage. I don't shy away from that. I, I like how Steven Universe approached it. I like how Shira approached it. I like how Storytime approached it. But I do think that if we're going to have our children understand that this is a normal part of life, homosexuality, bisexuality is a normal part of life, then we have to also be honest about the issues that the communities face, the judgments they face and how they overcome, if they overcome. Sometimes we can't overcome that. I'm polyamorous, I'm pansexual, and there are some issues I will never be able to get over because society is far too judgmental. You know, so it's it, we have to be honest and say, yes, there are gay relationships out there, but there are people who are also bigoted out there, and we can't shy away from them. Sesame Street didn't shy away from Black Lives Matter. So why can't we have our shows be brutally honest about how difficult it is for us to be who we are? I think um, science fiction and fantasy and comics have such a tremendous medium to approach this issue with. I mean, X-Men didn't shy away from race relations back in the day where it was the wrong thing to write about, you know? And um, I think we need write more and more courageous writers out there that are quite prepared to write about the wrong thing every now and again for our children. I it's, agree. We need more Chris Claremonts, more Stan Lees. More Stan Lees. Uh, go back to the 1800s. H.G. Uh, Wells. He 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 was a you know he was a thinker out of his time. He you know he literally frowned upon the elite class as he used to call them back in the day. I. Uh... I, I read a whole bunch of H.G. Wells books mm-hmm. when I was a teenager, and uh, just recently I, uh, I reread The Time Machine. Um, and when I was a kid, I think I missed all the politics in that yeah. book. I mean, they're they're pretty glaring now, though. Yeah. You know how he uh, how he felt about uh, the the wealthy overclass and how much of a threat they were in, in general to uh, to people who just don't think to question them. I, I think that's really what the whole book was about. Oh yeah, War of the Worlds. Everybody says was about uh, the Boer War. If you actually look at a lot of his interviews, he actually mentions the Ameri- you know the American genocide of the uh, Native American people and. The Aboriginals in, in Australia, he said, you know, he was literally pointing out the Martians were us. The Martians are the white guy. And this was in a time where 
colonialism was considered just a natural part of life. You know, you know I took your uh, recommendation, great uh, video on your YouTube channel um, about uh, this History Channel documentary. Uh, the Great uh, I think Martian it was called War. The Great yeah. Martian War. Yeah. yeah. Man, I watched that thing, and uh, it was it was so novel. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. How, um, you know, it, it really felt like a World War One documentary, you know, where they had footage that looked like it was from different times and different places and um they 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 got it down to the the dialect that that people are speaking during those those periods where they're supposed to be from and it just felt so authentic and so interesting yeah yeah you should uh, also if you ever get the chance to watch um wolf the world's the true story that was done before the great martian war in fact it was actually the the original concept that was promoted to um, to history channel before history channel went to the derrick and thing it, it, it's done in the same way um, I, I wouldn't say quite you know quite as visually effective but it was done in the same way but it's done based on the original novels version you know it has um, the the last survivors account of the of the original invasion um and the way timothy you know what what happened was with timothy hines he, he created the first faithful adaption of the war of the worlds and it was terrible even he admits it, it, it was a complete disaster so what he did was he finally got the rights back to his you know to, to his old footage and he reinvented it into war of the worlds the true story which was an award-winning success it was actually much better than his original and the way he you know the interviews with the last survivor who dies who who apparently died in the 60s but the way they did the filming and the filming of the interview with the guy it felt like they were having an authentic interview with the survivor from the invasion of the 1890s the way he did the sound and the the choppiness of an of, of 60s footage that kind of thing so if you get the opportunity um i would watch that as well i think it's on amazon and Fimo prime i can't wait uh that sounds like a lot of fun uh one thing um that came to mind after seeing several adaptations of war in the world it, it really does feel like every time they do it um there's a different message that comes out if you would think that you know if you're adapting something that um you know it would basically be the same message there would be the same yeah. takeaway uh every time but with war of the worlds it's uh it's always something different yeah um, why is that why is there always why is there so much to pull out of it well, i think what, what it is they're trying to do with War of the Worlds, it's one of those things that you could almost adapt to almost any situation now. You know, uh, go back to Orson Welles, um, who did the very first radio adaption of it, and it's pretty clear what his message was. It was about the power of uh, modern day media, you know, the rise of Adolf Hitler through modern day, you know, from modern day media. So I think War of the Worlds, you know, has this potential to um, give a new message through the same old story. It's really one of those rare things you can do where you can take a look and say, okay, we know what the original message was, so can it be played in a new way that it presents a message that is relevant to our time? And yeah, yeah, it, it, it can. You can't do that with the time machine. Time machine's message is very, you know, you know, it's very black and white. But with War of the Worlds, you could do almost anything with a message wise. I don't think that's a bad thing, to be honest with you. I, I think if you can actually bring in something new with an old with an old story, that's great. 
that's great. I'm all for adaption. Usually, I think that adaption is far more entertaining than you know than the original source. Like I said in my review of the BBC series, it was a good adaption. Uh, you know, it had, it had its flaws, but um, I understand why they adapted it the way they did. It's my favorite novel of all time. But if I gave it to somebody today to want to read, they would have to be somebody who likes their literature to, to read the book. I think that War of the Worlds is such a timeless, you know, such a timeless thing. You know, you could do almost anything with it. Yeah, that's how I feel with it. You know, you could almost throw any message in there. Advanced civilization, you know, can have different motivations for, for why they're doing what they do, you know, why they're invading us. There, there's another adaption out, I don't know if you're aware of, uh, released by Canal. Um, uh, or, or Fox TV. Uh, are you familiar with that? Uh, to be perfectly honest with uh, with you and the audience out there, I uh, uh, my experience with War of the World has been uh, the movies, yeah. the television show from the 1980s, the musical, and the History Channel documentary. Yeah. Um, I started reading the original novel uh, maybe 20 years ago, but I never finished it. Mm, that's my point. I think the problem is, is um, H.G. Wells talks and talks and talks a lot. His book may not be as, uh, as thick as Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, but what he lacks in detail, he makes up for in embellishment. I, uh, I remember that he had a lot of relationship building in the book. Uh, yeah. And the book sort of switches perspective uh, a few times. Uh, so the characters all feel real. It feels like a world with uh, history, a world with relationships in it. And I, I think for me, uh, as a media consumer and a reader and, you know, whatever. I, I like stories where there's that kind of thing in a world, where there's uh, just a backstory, a background, something to figure out and learn. Yeah, I mean, the, the, when we're going into adaptions, where, where people do modern-day adaptions of the War of the Worlds, back in, back in the day, you didn't have this mass communication thing where, you know, if there was a Martian invasion in the south of England, Nobody would know about it in London for a few days. That was how it worked. And even if they did, no one would take it seriously because it was so far removed from them. These days, you can't do a War of the Worlds adaption where mass communication isn't a thing. So you have to do it in such a way that it is relevant to today's issues. You know, there, uh, Couldn't you do that with the personal relationships? I, I feel like uh, uh, sometimes when they do War of the Worlds, like uh, the Steven Spielberg movie, for example, I, I feel like they glossed over a lot of that. Uh, oh, yeah. For me, that was... When I see War of the Worlds, that's that's what I like to see. I like to see the people going crazy. Yeah. Uh, disaster's kind of cool. Uh, but watching the people is, is really the most interesting thing uh, yeah. about that story it's not even the aliens unless i'm crazy yeah, that yeah. was it no 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 that's not crazy at all in fact that's actually how water worlds worked we only get to see the martians twice in the novel you know the, the actual martians themselves twice in the novel and everything that wells says about their motivations is conjecture he doesn't say it as a matter of fact he says their planet is cold it's logical to assume they're coming from a dying world but that's all we know about because it wasn't a story about the Martians. It was a story about, again, us. How the uh, the artillerymen suddenly became this, um, you know, this supremacist. The weak should be cast aside and only the strong can survive. And then you got the parson who himself approaches it in such a different way where he, you know, his entire reality has fallen apart. His faith is now in question because God is supposed to save the world, but God isn't there. And... The, you know, and the narrator just slaps him and says, where was God in the middle of an earthquake? That kind of thing. Do you think God has abandoned you because he wasn't the abandoned P-51 
you know, pe- you know, people in the middle of an earthquake. So the way Wells approached how different people approached the invasion and how the narrators fall from grace throughout the entire novel is, is a very, you know, it's a very, very fascinating view on, you know, on humanity. Again, um, nobody wrote about disasters in a fictional sense until H.G. Wells did. Nobody, nobody, really? yeah, nobody did uh, a novel on alien invasions. Um, nobody did a, a disaster novel. Uh, nobody did anything quite like quite like what H.G. Wells did with War of the Worlds. If it wasn't for War of the Worlds, we wouldn't have you know the likes of Mars Attacks and stuff. And I love Mars Attacks, not the movie, but I love the whole concept of it. You know, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know yeah, Wells was you know there were science fiction writers beforehand We're talking about a time where everybody thought that everything scientific was discovered and um, Wells wrote a novel where he said no you're wrong there's, there's still a lot more we don't know about you know and uh, that's why I like the guy getting back to our original point uh, about writers I really want to see more out of the box thinking um, so what so what makes a, um, a good uh, adaptation of uh, <laughs> War of the Worlds versus a, a bad one. I'm, I'm sure you've seen some bad ones. Uh, I think faithful re- faithful renditions of bad adaptions. If something is too faithful, it, it's boring. Okay. Um, try and imagine doing Lord of the Rings faithfully. It, you know, with all it, the it, long descriptions and yeah, all the thirty oh pages on a toenail. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I to me. A good adaption is one that, you know, that, 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 that says, okay, here is the core concept of War of the Worlds, and this is how we're going to do it. The 1953 version, the, the that movie, is to me one of the best adaptions of the War of the Worlds. Sure, it didn't have tripods. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, uh, but it was still one of the best adaptions out. I loved the tripods in the BBC version. It was a bad adaption. Um, it had good elements to it. And it could have done, you know, they could have done better with it. But it had tripods, so that was a winning, that was a winning factor for me. Um, the problem I had with um, Steven Spielberg's adaptation was that it was too 9/11 for me. Uh, four years after 9/11, uh, to me as a British guy, we lived through terrorism practically. I lived through terrorism all my life. You know, I had my grandparents tell sure. me you don't get blown up by an IRA bomb, that kind of thing. You got to understand. Oh, yeah. our, our way of approaching terrorism was, it's a thing that happened, we will mourn the dead, we move on. That, that's our British way of thinking. So when War of the Worlds came to our country, the 9-11 thing for us, we didn't, it wasn't so much something that we moved on from, it was something that we kind of got, it happened, we know it happened, it's a terrible thing. And we don't need this constant reminder that it was a terrible thing. You know, we understand it. I think in America, we just, in general, I mean, even now, I, I feel like we don't have a ton of firsthand experience Yeah. when it comes to terrorism. I've lived overseas. Uh, I lived in the Middle East. Um, yeah. I, I spent time in Egypt and uh, Jerusalem and uh, a little bit in Ireland. Um, so it's a completely different world, uh, the way they see it, um, they, where they have, you know, day-to-day uh, experience with this kind of thing and, and, and you've got to understand for us when um, the Americans are telling us we need to fight the enemy blah 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 this war against terrorism a lot of us lost family and I've lost family members in you know in IRA bombings and some of us still remember that Sinn Féin 
at the time who spoke for the IRA was going over to America for funding. So a lot of us are still pretty sore that a lot of the bombs, a lot of the shootings that got our family members killed came from American fundraisers. And then when America came to us and said, we've got to fight terrorism, we're like, where the heck were you for the past 40 years? Don't get me wrong, I, I think Ireland should be a united island. I, I truly do. I'm on the I'm on the Irish side. I'm as, you know when it comes to unification, I'm on Sinn Fein's side. But I still have to remember that we lost. I lost family members as a result of this, and I lost a lot of family members as a result of American funding. So when we had people saying now you, you know when we had the um, underground bombings in two I think 2000, uh, 2003, we had Americans and now you guys know what it's like to be attacked by terrorists, and we're like f you you you. Wow, thanks. They wondered why we were so angry that they were telling us what, what it was like to, you know, to, to be attacked by terrorists. We've known for, for years. We've known for decades. And, and it really horrified a lot, a lot of us more left-wing British, you know, British and Scottish people about how out of touch America was with what was really going on in our country. You know, how much they didn't really appreciate it. Right. And when we do experience terrorism in America, um, I still don't think we have the tool set uh, to cope with it. We approach it like communism or something abstract. Yeah. I mean, um, when we had, um, had the, the failed uh, bombings in, you know, in the underground, one of the terrorists literally ran right past me. So I was that close to being blown up myself. And, uh, you know, and the buses came to a stop. Train, you know, the underground trains came to a stop because they had to. And we just went about our lives normally during that day. It's not something we panicked about. We just went about our business. Traffic went on as normal. The shops stayed open. I went to HMV, got my CD. This was in London. And that's how we handled it. You know, if we panic, if we start sensationalizing it, two, you know, two things happen. First of all, the authorities can't do their job because there's too much panic going on. And second of all, the terrorists win. You know, if life doesn't continue as normal, they win. And, and this is why white supremacists and um, and the more radical, is, you know, is Islamic um, terrorist cells poke America so much because America is so easy to poke. You can make, you know, they, you know I, I, what was the joke in uh, Born for Columbine about? A group of scared people moved from Europe to America and found that there are people living here that they were even more scared of. And it's been a running joke in Europe ever since that America is almost scared of everything. I hope I'm not insulting anybody there, but that's the impression. I, I don't think you are. I, I, think, uh, I think you're doing people a disservice when you're not honest about, about these kinds of things. And yeah. uh, I think part of the problem in America that you just don't see in Europe and, and other places is this um, this strain of, of crazy anti-intellectualism. Mm. You know, uh, people don't want to sit and think through a problem in America. They want their opinions, they want their politics pre-digested and handed to them rather than, um, you know, really honestly consuming media and being critical of things. Critical thinking has always been uh, a problem in America. Yeah. I feel happy, though, um, that uh, I think that's starting to change, but it's a very slow change. Yeah, I mean, the Internet is a great tool. It's a great tool. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of dark things that go around the Internet information-wise, but... 
the young know where they're going to look at this point. They know that MSNBC has a political bent. You know, they know that Fox News has a political bent. They know who runs mainstream media these days. They, they, they understand that. People like you and me will probably sit down and watch TYT or the Humanist, you know, the Humanist Report or whatever, because we know that even when it comes to the Democrats, they will turn around and say, the Democrats are really messing things up too. They will say that. But you won't see that on MSNBC. You won't see that on Fox News. You know, they are literally entrenched so much in the Democratic um, Republican mindset that they will they won't criticize the other side. It, it, it just doesn't work. But at least when I sit down and watch TYT, you know, when Obama was running, TYT didn't shy away from criticizing Obama when he was wrong. You didn't see that on MSNBC. You know, I'm I'm sorry. I'm going to say. Part of the mess we're in is largely because of what the Democrats refused to do. You know, the, the, the whole reason a man like Trump is in power right now is largely because of what Democrats refused to deal with, because they were so comfortable with the status quo. Right. Uh, and the status quo has always sucked. Yeah. It, it's always come up short when it comes to people's rights and people's dignity and uh, people's jobs, the economy, all of it. Um, I, I don't understand why, why people are so complacent uh, with the way things are. Uh, the way things are suck yeah. in general. It's good for a very small number of people, but, you know, the rest of us have to live with it. Yeah, but what was it Biden said to, you know, to, 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 you know, to, to responses? Nothing will effectively change. Well, great. That, right. that, that's, you know, you know, he, I, I'm sorry. Well, but he, he doesn't want to roll forward. He wants to go back. Uh, yeah. to where things made sense. Uh, and that's terrifying. But, you know, it, it's like we were talking about earlier, you know, our choice is bad or horrible. Uh, which do you want? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm old. I, 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 like I said, I, I'm getting, I'm turning into an old man, you know, and it's not my future I'm fighting for anymore, you know, and I wish people like Biden, you know, Kamala Harris and, you know, uh, you know, Pelosi would understand that they're not going to inherit the world that they're setting up. You know, it, it's, you know, the reason I like Bernie Sanders so much is that this is a 78-year-old man, you know, 76, 78, who's literally saying, I'm not going to inherit the next world. I'm fighting for the next generation. But you don't get any other politician doing that as much. When my great-great-grandfather fought in the First World War, he knew I wasn't going to agree with him and everything, but you know why he, he he said he fought? He said so that I didn't have to agree with him and everything. He did it because he knew he I, he knew he wasn't the generation that was going to inherit the 1970s, the 1980s. He knew it was going to be people like me. I wish I had more people like my grandfather. You know? Yeah, yeah, I, I completely understand. That's a a really healthy way to look at things. Yeah. Sorry, I, I went off on a uh, tangent there. No, no, this is this has been amazing, uh, actually. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but uh, we are an hour and a half in, and uh, I'm going to We are. We could, we could go on forever, could we? <laughs> we could. You know, I keep saying this has been the best show we've ever done every time we do it, uh, but I think at least so far, this has been an absolutely fantastic show. Thank you. Thank you so much for for joining me today. I wish the other uh, the other girls uh, could have showed up. They you know how well, it is. Uh, they've I'm got always, busy schedules, always, time zones. 
I'm always willing for you know for, for another run uh, run with you if you want to do that. that that's something I'm, I'm always willing to do. That would be fantastic. Uh, I'd love to have you back uh, with uh, with Aaron and Crystal. I'm sure they'd have uh, a ton of uh, questions and perspectives uh, for you. Do you have anything? So we've already talked about your projects, but uh, we probably want to promote that again. Tell me about what you're uh, what you're up to and and what you well, like to promote. Well, well uh, briefly, yeah, I, I'm currently working on an animated version of a live-action show I'm waiting for, for the option on right now called The Mysterious Mrs. E. I think I gave you the concept. It's about a woman who owns a tea shop in the middle of reality. The, the live-action version is kind of darker, than, you know, darker than what I'm dealing with with, with, the, TV, with, with the animated TV show. But it, it's my first foray into real, into real animation. I don't know where it's being distributed yet. That's down to the distributors. We are um, we are looking at Netflix. My sponsor did Tout Cartoon Network at some point, but um, that's uh, that's my project. That's at the moment. It's going to be a four. Uh, I'm just looking at four seasons. It's going to be a complete story. I, I'm not very good at writing ongoing seasons. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that that's basically it's my, harder my, than my, it looks. It is, yeah. It is, yeah. I mean. They gave me a challenge. My original concept for the live action show was 13 episodes. They wanted me to compress it down to eight. So that was a challenge in itself. But I pulled it off, you know. So, uh, But this season uh, um, is going with 10 episodes per, uh, per, per season, and it's going to be four, uh, four seasons. So you're looking at at least 40, 24-minute episodes as well. And I'm, I'm very excited. The, the She-Ra community is very excited about it you know that you know on the groups i've been in i've mentioned it and they're literally all over this right now they keep telling me to make it more gay you know <laughs> so i think so i think it's yeah. kind of funny things the, the gayer something is the uh the happier uh, a lot of people myself included uh, are going to be <laughs> so yeah I, i'm very excited about it you know it, it's it's um not often that you actually start something with a, with a fan base already establishing itself before you've actually made it. So that made me pretty happy, you know. As soon as they read the concept and the issues I was dealing with, they all wanted it. I've got to go, you know, on the, after the 15th, I've got to go for at least 125 auditions. So, <laughs> a voice acting audition. So that's going to, that's going to be a challenge, you know. And I wish I could cast them all, but I don't have that. I don't. I don't have that much money, and I don't have that much, you know, that that many casts, you know, that, that many characters, and you know, for, for a single show. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, and um, I intend to be going back to reviewing on my channel as well. It's it's it's. I, I've taken a hiatus for a while. I think largely because of burnout. Uh, with YouTube, you usually find that you know you just need to take a break. But I'm thinking of going back into it again. You know, continue with my animated avatar. I've quite enjoyed doing doing it with that um, cartoon character now. So that, that that's all I can that really tell you. Really exciting. Thank you. Thank yeah, that, you. That's I, exciting stuff. Um, I'm I'm uh, I, I can't wait to uh, to see some of this in action. Well, I'm working on the pilot in November, so I will make sure that you get a sneak peek at the pilot. Oh, I I would love that. Very seriously. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've really enjoyed today, and um, I hope I didn't ramble too much. <laughs> oh my God, no, you were perfect. Um, uh, seriously, um, if you ever have uh, the inclination, you are totally welcome back here. This was an amazing show, and uh, I think 
I think everybody's really going to enjoy it. Thank you. I would really like to come back. I, I really enjoy, you know, enjoy the conversations here. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Gals of Geekdom is a podcast for high-quality nerds everywhere, produced by the lovely and talented Eva Webb. If you're somewhere you can leave comments, let us know by writing a short paragraph about your pets. Join us next week as we get back to basics with Erin, Crystal, and me. See you then.